we're in we're in the eighth century BC, and Assyria is coming. Assyria is the superpower of its day. Um, they they boast about their cruelty in everything they do. <laughs> they boast about it. Um, a kind of classic example, something I've told you about before, when the Assyrian army would approach a city, they would often, the city would often simply just automatically capitulate. Because um, w- one of the tactics they used was when they captured a city, they'd take all the leading citizens out, um, outside the main gate of the city, decapitate them, pile the heads up in a, in a heap, and impale the bodies on the walls of the city and let them rot. Uh, so cities just simply gave in when the Assyrians approached. Does this make sense to you? So the, the uh, warning of the coming of Assyria is, is um, fear-inducing, except for one person in the story. Actually, there's a party in Jerusalem, a political faction in Jerusalem that is pro-Assyrian. They think this is a good idea. What they don't know is when you're not relying on the Lord, almost any bad thing can happen. Are you with me here? In fact, uh, isn't it interesting if, if our life is in God, if God is life and I abandon him? Isn't it fascinating? Isn't it shocking? Isn't it surprising, astonishing, unexpected? That if you abandon the source of life, you end up in death. <laughs> Isn't that shocking to you? And that's where Ahaz is headed. This is what's coming for him and for his descendants uh, with Assyria. So we went through chapter 7, and we're in chapter 8, where we're dealing with this, this kid, or the name. In fact, the four names, <clears throat> it's been a couple of weeks since we were together, there were four names at the beginning in chapter 7 that we uh, 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 started getting. So Isaiah must take his son Shar Yashuv to the, to the uh, Fuller's Field and there meet Ahaz. And he is to tell, the, tell him about the coming of a child whose name will be what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Then in the early part of chapter 8, I get another name of a child, namely Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, if you break it up into its parts, it's not too bad. Uh, but he, yeah, <laughs> except for six toe. Uh, the uh, uh, the four names are significant. Uh, the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz means hurry to the plunder, hasten to the, to, the, to the loot. An attack is coming. Are you with me here? But Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Yeshayahu means the Lord saves. How can we count on that? Because our Yashuv, a remnant will return. Yet, there is still judgment. I'm sorry, this is, this is something you can count on. I'm sorry, I got, I got it mixed up. The jury will please disregard the preceding statement. Uh, 
Maher Shalal Hashbez, war is coming. Judgment is coming. But the Lord saves. And the outcome is Sha'ar Yashuv, a remnant will return because Emmanuel, God is with us. Are you with me here? The four names are significant and are, are encapsulating the message that Isaiah is giving. I say there are two perspectives we need to keep in mind. As Isaiah gives these messages, oh, you, the way you disseminate a message in the ancient Near East is by, is by uh, speech. The way you preserve a message in the ancient Near East is by writing. Most people, uh, probably in Israel, the level of literacy was substantially higher than in most countries. And, and for the first point on that, you only have 22 letters in the alphabet. It's a much easier language to learn to write and to read than the other languages of the ancient Near East. Are you with me on this? Uh, but secondly, there's just not a lot of reading material available. Reading material is very expensive. And so you're probably not going to have much, much occasion ever to see anything in writing. At, in, in some professions, you need to be able to read, but most professions, if you're a farmer, you don't need to be able to read. You just need to know how to read the signs of the times, right? When, when is the right time to plant and so forth. So, so the way you get a message to people is by speaking. So as Isaiah speaks this message... He's telling Ahaz about what's coming for him and for his day. <clears throat> but Isaiah was directed by the Spirit to write this message. So it also has something to do with subsequent periods. Yes, we're still reading it, as Sixto mentioned in his prayer. We're still reading it. And so the message has a long-term impact that people have to know. And in fact, the long-term impact is going to be faced as late as um, uh, Isaiah 35, 36 and 37 when Assyria is at the walls of Jerusalem. Are you with me here? So Ahaz has a son named Hezekiah. So the next generation is where all the full force of the Assyrian in, uh, uh, influence in Judah is going to be faced. It's going to be an attack in Ahaz's day too. And Ahaz thinks he is purchasing political freedom by taking the, taking the pro-Assyrian point of view instead of opposing Assyria with a coalition of Western states. Instead, he's going to face profound captivity. In fact, um, uh, servanthood, he's going to be a slave to the king of Assyria. And because he is a slave to the king of Assyria, they're going to take everything he has in tribute. Are you with me here? So he's, he's getting nowhere. Isaiah, in chapter 7, was sent to, Isaiah, to uh, Ahaz to tell him, trust the Lord. In fact, let's turn back to chapter 7 just briefly. I want to show you something there. It's something we've pointed out, but not perhaps in quite this way. Um, Look at verse 10. This is a continuation of the conversation between Ahaz and Isaiah. So verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. And of course, 
you perhaps know uh, Ahaz's response. I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Sounds very pious, but it's not, as Martin Luther said, when God has commanded to test, it is sin not to test. So, verse 13, Isaiah's response is, listen now, O house of David. This is not merely a message for Ahaz. It's for the house of David. So it's a message that bears upon Ahaz and Hezekiah and um, Manasseh and Ammon and Josiah and so on, down the, down the generations to 586 B.C. When the, when the kingdom is finally destroyed. But it reaches down the generations for generations to come so that you know Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14 with reference to Jesus. We have yet to explain how this can include Jesus. So far, I'm talking to you about Isaiah's message as he speaks it, not Isaiah's message as he writes it. We're going to be laying the foundation to understand that, I trust, today. Um, but But it was essential that we go back and review because you have to have the context. So we got into chapter 8. We have the birth of Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I remind you, in chapter 8, I, uh, Abraham, Isaiah says, I went into the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said to me, name him. Zet, I, I asked you two weeks ago, does that sound familiar? What's it sound like? Very. Well, yeah. But it sounds like Isaiah 7. The, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, she sh- and they shall call his name em- Emmanuel. Yeah. Now, is this child is probably the same child. People had more than one name. Okay? Um, I, I asked you recently, who was Jethro? I, that's why I quit teaching Greek. Uh, what tense is this aorist verb? Uh, uh, who was... Who was Moses' father-in-law? Jethro. Jethro, but he's also called Rule. Well, people have more than one name. Solomon's other name is Jedediah. Oh. Hmm. That's why it's so yeah, that's why. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the point is that here probably the immediate fulfillment of the <coughs> prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 is taken here in chapter 8. With the child, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. The Lord is with us. Though warfare is coming, the Lord is with us. And I pointed out to you that the word Immanuel may be translated two ways or interpreted two ways. The Lord is with us, that is, in his providence. Yeah, I can't get connected to the projector somehow. I'm sorry, I thought you were a visitor coming to take a seat. Well, I didn't know whether to interrupt. Well, of course, that, that's fine. Okay, where were we? Um, talking about two names. Two names. Um, when, you are, when you change your relationship with God, as Jacob does, God gives him a new name. When you change, a, uh, when you change from one sovereign to another, so... Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael become Daniel, Yershak, Meshach, and Abednego, or a bungalow. So, uh, uh, the, uh, um, so Jesus never changes who? Jesus never changes no, but he has many names. 
So, um, I, of course, Jews will say, why didn't, why didn't they name Jesus' name? If this was a prophecy of Jesus, why didn't they name him Emmanuel? Because everybody would be naming their kid Emmanuel and they'd be claiming to be Jesus. Are you with me here? What does Jesus mean? The Lord saves. Same name as Isaiah. Are you with me here? So, so it turns out it's, it's okay. But, but my point is that once we get into chapter 8, now the Lord's presence. Oh, that's what it was. The meaning of the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, the Lord is with us, can be interpreted one of two ways. The Lord is providential in his presence. He's here. He's taking care of us. And that's immediately the point. But later, as we shall see in chapter 9, the name Emmanuel becomes a far more significant name because there are, as there are four names in the beginning of the passage in chapter 7 and early part of chapter 8, there are four names in the middle of the passage in chapter 9. You know them. Yeah, you do. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there are four balancing names. And suddenly, Immanuel becomes more than simply the providential presence of God. It means God, who is, who is among us. Are you with me here? Uh, so so the, the, the context begins to broaden out the message. And this is, a, this is a critical point, folks. We treat the Old Testament quotations in the New as if all I have to do is go back and look at the Old Testament verse and say, there it is, see, that's what, the, that's what the New Testament author said, so let's go on. Most of the time, I have to go into a lot more detail. Most of the time, the quotation is there as a, as a marker to a field of meaning, marker to a context. If you're a golfer, I don't understand that. The word golf spelled backwards is flog. I, I caddied for a brief period of time. I can tell you, I was flogged. My, my, my energy flagged and I was flogged. Yes? So they, they, the, the, if you're a golfer, though, one of the things you want to know is where's the green? Yes? So you're teeing off. Um, where's the green? What's one way to find the green? Look for the flag. Uh, do you expect to hit the flag? You'd love to, yes. But do you expect to is a different question. Now, what, wh why, why do you want to know where the flag is? That's where the hole is, and the hole is in the green. The hole is not only in the bottom of the sea, it's also in the green. Amen? So, so <laughs> I, I hold it in not much at all. So uh, the, uh, so you're looking to, to get in the field where the hole is, yes? Because mm -hmm. your, your next shots will be much different. I'm not sure easier, but much different once you get on the green. Yes or no? Yes. Right? This is what the qu quotations often do. They point us to a context, and my task is to go study that context and try to understand it. So I have a quotation from Isaiah 7.14 in Matthew. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, for he shall save his, or they call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
But when I look at Isaiah 7.14, as Isaiah speaks the words, why do you speak? To, well, yeah, to, to, to disseminate the message. Why do you write? To preserve it. All right? Are you with me here? So as Isaiah speaks, he's speaking into the context of Ahaz, and as he speaks to Ahaz, Ahaz needs a reason to trust the Lord. So in chapter, at the end of chapter 7, this Emmanuel is one in whose lifetime, before he knows how to choose the good and, and reject the evil, the two kings that Ahaz is so terrified of, not Assyria, he's pro-Assyrian, but Samaria and Damascus, the two kings he's so afraid of are going to lose their kingdoms anyway. Well, what's, what's to worry about with them? God's going to take care of them. God is with us providentially. He's protecting. Does this make sense to you? But because Ahaz is a man fundamentally of unbelief, looking once again at chapter 7, um, 